Hello, and welcome to the Philosophical Angle Podcast with your host, author Chris Angle. Hi, this is the Philosophical Angle Program, and I'm your host, Chris Angle. I'm the author of four books on philosophy, one of which is The Philosophical Equations of Economics. And uh, we're, uh, this is free for viewing at the philosophicalangle.com. If you'd like to contact us and to make comments or inquiry or make suggestions or whatever, give us, a, uh, give us an email at contact at the philosophicalangle.com. Along with me is my colleague and co-host, Rick Samuelson. Rick graduated from Yale and from Wharton and is an independent venture capitalist out on the West Coast. Good to see you, Rick. The purpose of the Philosophical Angle is to examine the nature of concepts being used in current media and secondarily use those definitions to understand the righteousness and ethical superiority of conservative positions. And this week we're going to to talk about mercantilism versus free trade. And in in the news of late, there's been a lot of discussion about free trade and free trade agreements. Uh, what occasions this uh, this discussion is the raising of steel tariffs and uh, uh, and others other types of tariffs to to various countries. The Trump administration feels that when one country has a high import tariff to dampen to, to dampen the the export of goods and services from this country to another country, while the other country enjoys low tariffs on their exports to the United States, then, then when that happens, the administration feels that this is unfair. But this has brought up the topic of free trade in general, and a lot of influential voices are now expressing their views on the, the subject of mercantilism versus free trade. So I, I think the administration's position on, on free trade is positive in that they would like to establish agreements with uh, with other countries, abolishing or putting in a very low nominal rate for, for tariffs in both directions. Um, that is, uh, countries, both countries put a, a low tariff on the importing of goods from the other country. So it's, it's mutually free trade. And it appears that this administration favors a, a parity of, uh, of tariffs. Uh, with its with its trading partners and and ha- but it has a, a prejudice against countries that have a high tariff against our exporting goods to them and so the administration feels that it shouldn't be just one way they feel that uh, if they can open up the other country which will allow us to export on an equal opportunity then countries of all or all the trading partners would be able to profit as they will have equal opportunities Fair enough, uh, is a, but it is still it's a semi-mercantilistic thought process. I, I would say, uh, on the one hand, it's a, it's a mercantilistic philosophy. On the other hand, it's an equal opportunity philosophy, looking to help American companies maximize their their opportunities uh, to make profits in export markets. But that brings up the question: Is mercantilism good at any at any stage? Is it is it is free trade better? Always, uh, I know many people say that free trade is the only way to go, and I agree. But uh, but we have to ask why. Uh, why is free trade always better than any kind of mercantilistic uh, attitude taken by any country? So 
So what makes it so? And uh, let's explore that. Uh, so let, let's. So I think the first thing we need to do is is define mercantilism as the philosophy of exporting more than you import. Uh, the thought line is that if you export more goods and services than you import, then you will have more wealth coming into your country. However, this economic philosophy seems to present a problem. The United States for, for many decades had a surplus of exports over imports, but then over the last 50 years or, or, or so, it has become a net importer of goods and services and, and thus a, has a negative trade imbalance, uh, at least according to the governmental departments that, that I read about, uh, that track these uh, goods and services for export and import. Um, and by mercantilistic thought, the United States is surely decreasing its wealth. But the U.S. gross domestic product has been increasing and the United States is becoming wealthier over the last 50 years in spite of this negative flow of goods and services, this imbalance. And, but how can this be? You know, we have to ask. Uh, well, it, it's because that there is no such thing as the philosophy of mercantilism. There is no such thing as a negative trade imbalance. And for that matter, the, the opposite, a positive trade imbalance. No such thing. I know, uh, I know you're kind of thinking about uh, how could that uh, impossibility be possible, but uh, uh, we have seen figures before regarding trade imbalances that the United States has, has had over the last 50 years, but yet there, uh, the, the wealth continues uh, to grow inside the United States. Um, uh, so overall, there's a, a, a national mercantilistic imbalance, but it has no relevance. And in fact, there's no total overall imbalance of trade anywhere in the world. Uh, now I'm going to explain why I, I think this. Uh, I, we know that mercantilistic imbalances of trade exist because it, it, we, we, we know that, it, well, it, it doesn't exist because it violates several dictums of, of economics. Uh, the first dictum is that life seeks that which is good for it and life entities continue to seek more and more goodnesses uh, that, that come into its life. Uh, the second dictum is that the greater the freedom of society, the greater is the frequency and intensity of economic transactions. The, the, the verity of, uh, of this first dictum, uh, I think, is obvious. Life does, uh, does seek goodness for itself. Everybody kind of agrees that all life uh, entities uh, attempt to, to do that which is good for themselves. And, and whenever the opportunity to acquire more goodness for a, for a life entity occurs, the life entity will, will, always, will continue to see greater goodness. And regarding the second dictum, uh, we need to define freedom. So uh, we shall. Uh, freedom is the creation of priorities and then the effectuation of those priorities in our lives. Priorities are those things which we, by which we can order our lives, and they are pieces of knowledge. And we, when we decide to do something like acquire food, we do so because we have a, a priority to stop the pangs in our stomach. Uh, so we make a priority that we have to go down to the store to get some food. And the act of doing so is the effectuation of that priority, and that, and that priority is, the, is that hunger must be taken care of. Uh, so inside this 
decision-making process of using priorities to establish what we should do, we, we have motivation. And motivation is the comparison of the sacrifice to, a, to effectuate our priority. And that's weighed up against the expected reward. And if the uh, sacrifice is small and the reward is great, the motivation is great. And so we, uh, we make a calculation of, of these priorities and we calculate yeah. the risk, we calculate the effort, we calculate the time and the, and the necessary knowledge needed to effectuate any priority along with any material that we need. And so mercantilism violates the third rule of economics. The third rule of economics is that in order for an economy to meet optimum performance, competition must be allowed to, to flourish unencumbered. Uh, mercantilism violates that because it puts up high tariffs on incoming imports, uh, which encumbers competition, albeit it, the competition is coming from abroad. Nevertheless, competition is dampened. The importance of this will become apparent when we, when we define competition, and, and so here we go. Competition is the convergence and the divergence of priorities. When people or companies have the same priorities, such as wanting to sell cars into the same market, they have converging priorities and, and the beginnings of competition. General Motors, Ford, Honda, Mercedes, and all the rest, they all sell into the automobile market, and they're all vying for the customers that, that populate this, this economic niche. Uh, then, then companies, when knowing that they're up against direct competition. They all know it's not good for their health, so they try to diverge away from direct competition. And they do this by making their products, by differentiating their products and, and making their services and products and goods and different from their competition. And they do this by adding bells and whistles and making their products cheaper or making them of higher quality and, and, and any number of innovations that they, can, that they do. And uh, from the divergent part of competition, this is where you, you get innovation in the marketplace because they, they know that direct competition is, is not good for them, so uh, to their own health, so they, they diverge. And, and another way mercantilism impedes economic activity is that it shuts down at least, at least partially, societal freedom in that some people are not allowed to purchase items that they would otherwise want to. Uh, to purchase these these items are coming from overseas and are probably either less expensive or, or of higher quality uh, therefore mercantilism also hinders freedom and uh, lastly mercantilism violates the number one rule of economics in that life always wants to seek the best goodness as itself as we are as we've already established and obviously taking away the items that it would otherwise purchase uh, uh, is is by not allowing the life entity to achieve that goodness and by not allowing the entity to, to buy something it otherwise would want from, uh, in this case, from abroad. But remember, uh, I said that there's really in actuality no mercantilism. I have not answered that. We, uh, we have to get to that. So, what about it? Well, mercantilism violates one portion of the freedom dictum. 
Let's remember that inside the freedom dictum is an equation of the sacrifice equals the reward. Once the priority is established and is being uh, considered for effectuation, a calculation is made. That calculation is the sacrifice to achieve the reward. And that comparison is the motivation. That, that equation is the risk, the knowledge, the time and effort, and sometimes material, to produce something that is a, a good or a service. And the free will calculates, uh, will calculate from, from these ingredients to what extent the sacrifice is to be in order to achieve that reward. So, but the reward also is made up of the, the risk, the time, the effort, the knowledge, and the material. As the reward either comes directly out of the sacrifice uh, by the one who's doing the effectuation, that is like you sit back and you decide yeah, I'm going to make a, a bow and arrow or, a, uh, or something or some tool and you uh, fashion that bow and arrow, that tool, and voila, you've got, you've got the, uh, the result, the reward from, 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 from your effort. But uh, the sacrifice uh, can also come from the marketplace, whereby somebody else produces the something, and they're selling the something to you. Uh, now, so life wants naturally to fulfill uh, that first law of economics, Life wants to achieve that goodness. Life wants to make a sacrifice to achieve a reward, and inside that reward is the goodness that the life entity deems will, will make his life better. The life entity will, 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 now, will not allow the transaction to go forward to make a sacrifice to achieve the reward without knowing that it's going to be able to receive that reward. So if you have a country, say, uh, it's country A that is producing goods for export, and uh, within that, that country there's a company A um, that is producing a, a, a lot of goods and, uh, for, and, and services for export to country B, um, then um, country A uh, also would have a, a, a company selling those goods and services and and, uh, and that gives country a surplus uh, and it, exporting more than it imports but when it sells overseas it gets paid and it gets paid in money of country of country B and money is okay for them to receive for their goods and services because um, as they've exported it overseas it's okay for them to receive it because they know that the money has worth and they know that because all money is backed by the production of goods and services the US dollar is worth something because it's backed up by the production of goods and services that the people of the United States produce the same is true for all other currencies the goods and services of that country back up the currency if the, the, the people of country B do not produce anything then their currency is worth nothing no one will send them their goods because they know that they cannot receive any currency that is backed by goods and services and, and thus have of no worth. They will not receive goods and services commensurate with the goods and services that, that they produce in, in, in the transaction. 
uh, and if that's the case they're not going to go ahead and effectuate the sacrifice because there might be too great a risk that they're not going to receive the commensurate reward and so uh, in any transaction that is made by anybody in the world there's always a quid pro quo you are always going to want to receive something equivalent to what you give out so as we know life entities want to receive something of equal value for that which they give up in any economic transaction and so in the case of two countries where one country exports more than than the other bringing up the question of a, a mercantilistic behavior the country can still produce can proceed in delivering more goods than it receives because somewhere in the economic makeup of country B there are other indirect transactions involving other countries and other companies and other entities that later on can have a transaction with, with, with country A making up for that surplus in the account activity so and, and at this point so actually money is a promissory note that somebody can retrieve later on in time so if country A does not have a potential to, re, to receive benefit for its goods and resources then then as life, any life entity um, will, will, any life entity would decide not to proceed because it, it knows it will never receive any value for, 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 its, for what it's produced. But even if country A gets paid immediately in currency, uh, the risk is that if more goods are imported by country B and country B's production of goods and services falling, then its currency will start to lose value because all money is backed by the production of goods and services of that country. Money, money is, as I, as I just mentioned, is nothing else but promissory notes that one may redeem for value later. And so every economic situation is an expected quid pro quo. And as such, the, the, the mercantilistic situation actually doesn't exist. But uh, uh, And ultimately, there is never a, an imbalance over the long run. Um, but I've spoken enough here, and let's hear what Rick has to say about uh, the current situation. Rick, uh, what's up with this, uh, with the, the administration? The problem with the existing tariff regime is that even in these multiple, multilateral <coughs> arrangements, the tariffs are asymmetric. So Europe has a 10% tariff on U.S. automobiles. We Ours is more like 2%. And interestingly enough, when <coughs> Trump threatened to slap a tariff on European automobiles, and, and when we talk about European automobiles, of course, we're talking about German <coughs> automobiles, because as you may have noticed, there are no French cars left on the road. Right. There are no Swedish cars left on the road. Uh, there are no British cars left on the road. All those companies have been bought up by German companies or American companies. Or Chinese companies. Uh, interesting that the German Auto Association immediately offered to a free trade zone between the United States and Germany. That was their response. So, in other words, the Germans were smart enough to see that the, the system was implicitly unfair, that they have a competitive product, and that on balance, they will probably still prevail in terms of 
exporting more cars to us than we will export to them. Um, but, it, it, you know, in, in a narrow sense, the only way the Trump administration could have gotten the Germans to the table to even make that offer is by threatening a tariff. Otherwise, why would they have ever uh, altered their policy? Inconceivable. And you find these instances where different sectors are protected. The United States protects its agricultural sector. Europe protects parts of its agricultural sector. Canada does the same thing. Uh, China is absolutely notorious for all this stuff. Japan. So uh, the quote-unquote quote free trade arrangements across the world are, are not actually free trade. They're a hodgepodge of off-ramps and special deals and sector-specific tariffs that apply in one country and not another. And so, uh, in the broadest sense, the United States, you know, outside of uh, trade entrepots like Hong Kong, is one of the lower tariff uh, zones in the world. It's not the lowest, but it's one of the lower. Uh, in addition to that, uh, talking about mercantilism without talking about uh, freedom of capital, all right, and freedom of ownership is uh, nonsense. Uh, so if you have an asymmetric situation where a company, Chinese company can come in here and buy anything it wants outside of uh, certain companies that are in the defense industry or otherwise uh, have uh, some sort of military significance. And when we go over there and we can't buy anything except in a minority position, and even then there are all kinds of um, uh, limitations to what you can do. And when, as part of that ownership, the Chinese... Uh, partners are automatically entitled to your intellectual property. When, if the Chinese come over here and buy a company, uh, that's not true. You have, once again, uh, this tremendous asymmetry. Um, and in addition, it appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, just a couple days ago, when you have a country like particularly China that is systematically stealing intellectual property in big industries like semiconductors uh, and others, but one of their main targets right now is semiconductors, um, how do you address that except with a threat that they will respond to? In other words, they export they have an export surplus of over $400 billion for the United States. Threaten that, you get their attention. Anything short of that, they ignore you. So, you know, it's not, it's not a simple story. Uh, and I support Trump's threats. I don't know where the tariffs are all going to end up at the end of the day. I do see movement. I do see China start... I mean, China is the second largest economy in the world. It's somewhere between two-thirds the size of the United States and the same size as the United States, depending on how you measure it. And how is it possible that the, the uh, 
trade and intellectual property and investment regimes are so extraordinarily uh, asymmetric. Well, it's legacy, right? 25 years, China got rich. Uh, they were a poor country 25 years ago, and so the United States tolerated these asymmetric regimes. Well, this is no longer the case. Um, China's become rich through its export industry. Uh, now, turning uh, quickly to Germany, uh, you basically in Europe have one rich country with very low unemployment and then a bunch of other countries. That country is Germany. The reason Germany is so rich is because it's such a huge net exporter. And the problem, the disaster surrounding the euro is this. If you're Greece, right, you're using the same currency as Germany, uh, the only way you can afford, because, of the, because their industries are not competitive, because not enough Germans want to buy real estate in Greece, because not enough Germans want to take holidays in Greece, the only way you can afford to buy German stuff because they make so much of what Europe produces is to borrow money from the European Central Bank and or the uh, national governments and keep borrowing and hope one day you can have those loans forgiven. And this is exactly what is happening. And that's why uh, Greece has somewhere between 40 and 50% unemployment. A level of disastrous unemployment that would not be tolerated anywhere else. In, uh, in other parts of Europe, the numbers aren't so grim, uh, but you still have extremely elevated levels of, of unemployment in France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and numerous other countries. So, uh, where you don't, we have a system like Europe's where the currency does not adjust anymore. What gradually happens is countries like Greece get poorer and poorer and poorer in a relative sense, and Germany gets richer and richer and richer. And that's why Germany calls all the political shops as well, because they're the rich country. They can afford to subsidize others. You know, and if that's a fair system, I'd I, I venture to suggest that if you ask the average Greek, he'd probably say no. Or, or the average Italian. So, uh, I would, I would, I would, I would mention that as a, a counterpoint to the notion that somehow uh, trade makes us all richer. Uh, the final point I would mention is that the U.S. has gotten larger; the GDP uh, has grown uh, along with global trade. But if you look at family incomes in the United States over the last 15 years. Hardly grown at all. Hardly grown at all. In the meantime, the cost of health and the cost of education has skyrocketed. Right. In real terms. Not you know, not merely uh, nominal. In real terms. Skyrocketed. And so the after uh, tax uh, savings uh, Americans have that doesn't increase, and so you may say American citizens are getting the benefit of, of, of this trade, but in terms of jobs, 
And I would add the uh, labor participation rate in the United States is still way off where it was 30 years ago. It used to be 64, 65%, even higher. Now, where is it, 62, 63? Right. Uh, so, you know, if, if this, if, if world trade growth is such a benefit to Americans, you know, why, why, why are family incomes barely growing? And costs are skyrocketing. Okay. So. Yeah, you seem, you seem to. Something had to be done. You seem to indicate there's really two problems with, uh, uh, with uh, free trade, uh, it's it's company profits versus the the priority of free trade tariffs, and the other one is you seem to indicate is that uh, technology versus national defense. I, I think I, if I understand you correctly, uh, you mentioned China, and so uh, you have to uh, consider the the benefits of free trade versus technological advances going from one country to another. Uh, did I read you correctly on that? Yes, and when, I, when China is, feels intellectual property, I can tell you it's a systematic effort across many industries. That China is stealing, stealing technology from the U.S. or yeah. appropriating it. Yes, and uh, they do it uh, also through the students they send here. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've, uh, they are, of course, by far the largest contributor, shall we say, of students to U.S. universities. Okay, Rick, uh, thanks for your uh, input on uh, this uh, extremely important topic, and I'd like to uh, thank everybody for viewing, and we'll see you next week on the Philosophical Angle program. Thank you for joining us on the Philosophical Angle podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us for the next installment.